Welcome back to the Rebuild SoCal Zone podcast. I am John Swatolsky, your host for today. Our guests for this week's episode are Denny Zane, Executive Director, and Eli Lippman, Director of Development and Programming for Move LA. Gentlemen, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, John. Excited to talk with you today. Thank you. Well, your work is something that I've followed for some time in your advocacy in and around LA for uh, transportation, public transportation, and the related infrastructure. So I'm excited to dig in. Denny, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the history of Move LA, about what your organization does, what you're currently working on in terms of policy and projects? Sure. Well, I think the simplest thing about how we came to be is for folks to remember back to about 2006 or so, when it seemed as if traffic came to a standstill in Los Angeles. It was, and everybody was talking about it. And what's causing this? What's to blame here? It was really right around the time or just after Antonio V. Ragosa had been uh, elected mayor. And I had finished a recent campaign and was looking for major interest to put some time into. And I knew Antonio from his years as Speaker of the State Assembly, and I've always been very concerned and interested in traffic concerns and transportation concerns from my days on the Santa Monica City Council. So that was a kind of eye-opening moment that led to just thinking out loud, really, about what are we going to do about this horrifying traffic problem. And so knowing Antonio was a strong supporter of transit, especially the Wilshire subway, that became, I think, an opportunity to really get involved there and try to build support for Antonio's favorite project, which was the subway to the sea. But as you got into it, you realized that there was no place really to get big enough money to really make a difference with that project, except to go to the voters. And if you were to go to the voters, you really would need to go countywide because why would voters of the San Fernando Valley vote to tax themselves for a subway? So you really were quickly, I think, had to come to grips with the idea this had to be a countywide effort. And you're going to be having to support projects all over the county, not just the subway. And that then became the underlying set of conclusions, which prompted me and then others folks like Terry O'Day from Environment Now and uh, others that had worked in this space for a while to think really countywide is where we have to go. And by the way, you need two thirds vote. So you better be looking for something that voters really will support. So we had a convening, a big conference, and it just seemed to crystallize in the first few months of 2007. And we realized that the upcoming election 2008, November, was going to be the hot moment because that was a presidential election. We did some polling, got good numbers and convinced Metro at that point that they really should be putting a countywide plan on the ballot for voters and we would build coalition to help champion it. And that's what happened. Antonio saw our polling numbers and did a little polling of his own and was convinced, yeah, indeed, this really could win. And this is really where you would get the money for the subway, but also all kinds of other projects. That was Measure R. So Measure R passed by two-thirds in 2008. And the morning after, we all wake up and have our press conference declaring, you know, a glorious victory, realizing 30 years, oh my God, 30 years, you know, we need to speed this thing up. So we tried then to do Measure J in 2012, 
to extend Measure R from 30 to 60 years. It got close to two-thirds, but not enough. But it convinced all of us that the voters in L.A. County really were eager to make changes in investments in transportation, and that became the impetus for Measure M. We got a new mayor in Los Angeles. We built a broader, stronger coalition, brought in AARP and uh, faith community and other groups. And so in 2016, Measure M went to the ballot, and it made R and itself a measure that would last until voters ended it. That is not a specific time frame. R was no longer 30 years. It was continuous. And that would yield together about $120 billion over 40 years to invest in transit. It was very exciting when Measure M in 2016 also passed. And I have to say, the new mayor, Mayor Garcetti, really, really picked up the ball and ran with it, made it happen. Very energetic efforts. I'm very, very proud and pleased of the kind of leadership we saw there. And that was, you know, our big victories in the transit space. And it's really the major resource that LA Metro has been relying upon to undertake the building of uh, a number of rail projects throughout LA County. Of course, Exposition Line is done and open. Crenshaw Line, probably sometime in 2022. Regional Connector sometime in 2022. All near at hand. A number of projects slated to be completed then before the Olympics in 2028. And, you know, what a wonderful surprise the voters of LA County turned out to be. They then also, we took an idea to Supervisor Ridley Thomas for a sales tax to help the homeless, to provide services to help homeless people get off the streets. And once again in 2017, voters of LA County said yes. And that really is, we would probably have about 40,000, 50,000 more homeless on the street now if we hadn't had the resources of Measure H to provide interventions and help people find homes. Transit and housing really has become a major focus for us. We are working right now with a coalition to build a potentially qualify a measure for November 2022 to raise money for affordable housing, as much as $800 million a year for affordable housing in LA. That will be, I think, a transformational opportunity. Other cities are also looking at similar measures, I think, partly inspired by this effort. And so there could be an emerging programmatic model developing in Southern California to help address those issues. We are certainly very interested in climate issues, very closely related to transportation issues, and are working statewide to try to build a coalition for an effort there as well. So we have our hands in many things, but we are, you know, at heart, we were Move LA, set up to help advance our transportation agenda and now we're working on things that are clearly related, housing and emissions. Okay. Thank you, you Denny. That's quite a lot of work. And I want to hone in on those individual items here, but just need to focus on the number you just threw out. It's really being a resident of LA City and seeing the devastating effect that COVID has had on our homeless population, how the homeless population has really been so consistently increasing over the last number of years. The figure you just threw out, 40 to 50,000 more is so staggering to think. And that issue is so complex. We could do a whole podcast just on homelessness itself. But I just wanted to underscore that as such a need to continue to invest, in my view, in, in trying to end, well, the pandemic of homelessness in LA City and LA County. I do want to go back to the Measure R, Measure M as uh, related projects. You talked about the Wilshire 
subway, which I believe has then been named the Purple Line, Purple Line Extension, now Line D. Tough to keep up with all these names, but that's just one of a number of projects. Can you give us an assessment on how those projects are going? Are they moving fast enough to meet the needs that we'll have or the deadlines that we've set for the Olympics in 2028? How's Metro doing? How is this ridership going to be adapting to this build out of this new underground system? Yeah, thanks, John, and really excited to be on the podcast. I do listen to it uh, every now and then on my podcast list. So well, we thank you for that. Interesting right. to hear my own voice on the podcast. Yeah, Metro has a very aggressive set of projects that it's working on right as we speak. And I think we're, you know, we've seen some incredible projects go on online just in the past couple of years. And we are on the precipice of a number of other projects that we're going to see in just the next couple of months to years that are really going to be game changers for the system. One that I, I don't think people really understand the implications of is the regional connector project. So this will create a one seat train ride all the way from the San Gabriel Valley to Santa Monica and from Long Beach to the east side. And that really becomes a game changer for the way that people think about travel. Because, you know, as it currently said, I live near the Expo line. And for me to get to my office in the Arts District, I would have to transfer twice, get from the Expo line to the Red Line, Purple Line, and then to the Gold Line to get to the closest station to our office. But that would potentially be a one-seat train ride through underground through downtown. And there'll be several stations in the core of downtown that will open up. And that's currently under construction. They project to open that in 2022. So that's a real game changer. Then you also have the airport metro connector station and people mover, another huge project, $6 billion, that if you've been to LAX, you've probably seen the construction that will create an intermodal transit center near LAX where you can rent a car, you can park, you can get on the people mover to get into LAX so that you don't actually have to drive through the U itself. And then you will also be connected with high quality public transit through the Crenshaw LAX line, which is 98% done. I believe they're planning to either launch it later this year or early next year is the current plan. But another line that's going to connect to LAX and then they're also working on the Purple Line extension, where it's going to be at Wilshire and La Cienega. The plan is 2023, Century City by 2025, and Westwood VA by 2027. And we can't also forget the next-gen bus plan. This was a project that we worked for almost two years on to completely rethink the bus system. It hadn't been redone from the ground up in more than a generation. And obviously, Los Angeles County has changed significantly in that time. And so Metro undertook this effort where they engaged communities across the county about the bus system itself. And as part of the plan was to invest a billion dollars in bus infrastructure. So it isn't just about service, which is critical, and we need more of that as well. But actually, how do we prioritize buses on our street infrastructure? And they've actually been putting a lot of these sort of quick build projects, as they call them, into service in the last several months. In fact, just this past weekend, they added a bus priority bus only lane on Grand and Olive in downtown. Uh, they've also done one on Alvarado Street. They've done one on some of the north-south connections in downtown as well, uh, 6th. 
And they're continuing. They're working on ones on La Brea, as well as some other planned opportunities in the near future. They had Flower was very successful, actually, in downtown as well. So how do you provide infrastructure so that people can have fast, frequent, and reliable bus service? Because the reality is, is that the majority of riders on the metro system ride the bus. Over 80% of riders now post-pandemic are on the bus system. And so it really is the backbone of the system, especially as we build up the rail system, but will remain so in getting people from where they are to where they need to be. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's an interesting statistic that I hadn't realized. And you approached the the topic of ridership, which I'd like to dig into a bit more. Of course, the pandemic had a devastating effect on ridership across the country. Has that recovered? And how does that affect how LA Metro considers the implementation of NextGen and the development of these infrastructure projects? Yeah, great question. We saw a dramatic decline in ridership across the country and many agencies struggled to put buses on the road, not just because they didn't have the staff, right? I mean, you're a public service, but the people driving the buses were concerned about catching COVID and many bus operators have gotten sick and died from COVID, sadly. But just, you know, maintaining that service and having the funds to do so as ridership declined dramatically for some of these systems was critical. Now, there was some help from the federal government, a lot of help from the federal government, actually historic levels of help that we've never seen before where the federal government stepped up to support transit service for the first time in in decades, if ever. And that's been so important. We are very lucky in Los Angeles County because Measure M and Measure R, a portion of those measures fund operations of the transit system, which means that we can continue to have low fares and that a smaller percentage of our dollars for operations come from fare box, from actually put people putting into the system. And that's why we've been very lucky and able to launch a fareless transit system just in the last couple of weeks which has allowed 1.4 million K through 12 and community college students to ride any line, anytime. This is a, a project that we're really proud of and have worked on for several years throughout LA County. And why is this important? It's gonna help us bring back ridership significantly, but it's also great for education. You know, it creates a new generation of transit riders who love transit and know how to use the system. It also helps them get to school on time, possibly get to a job. If they're in high school and they're looking to go to start their college classes, they can go to a community college pretty easily. And it really creates an incredible opportunity for these students and particularly for low-income families because, you know, you had to pay for your student to ride the transit and that begins to add up and is a significant portion of a family's budget for transportation. So we're really proud of that program. We have not recovered to where we were in terms of ridership pre-pandemic. But we're starting to creep up and we're near, I think it's around 70% of what ridership used to be. And I don't know the exact figure, I don't work for Metro, but we're getting there. People are coming back onto the system and we're seeing more people ride the system. And that's really important. But one thing that is weighing it down and preventing more people from getting back on the system compared to other systems is just service. We need much better, much more fast and frequent and reliable service. And that's really going to be the difference for why somebody says, you know what, I'm going to take the bus or the train rather than driving. And so we're really pushing on the need for 
fast, frequent, and reliable service, as well as the necessary infrastructure investments. Yeah, I appreciate that. Rightfully so. I mean, that is the key decision point. Can you efficiently get from A to B to C back to A, multiple stops, or just on a commuting from A to B back to A? Oftentimes, even given the commuting times and and traffic difficulties, it is easier and more time efficient to travel by car. And I know that's what you're working on changing. So I appreciate that point. I should add too, especially right about now, as we're recording not when this actually goes out, but uh, the, the president is signing the uh, IIJA, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Deal. And embedded in that is a program, a $10 billion a year program that would work to connect high quality transit to affordable housing, and really bring together the Department of Transportation and the Housing and Urban Development Department uh, to provide better transit to urban areas, but also rural areas as well. And this really is the first time that we've seen these investments in public transit in the infrastructure bill. On top of that, there's $45 billion of funding for public transit and highways and roadways and other infrastructure, airports, ports, et cetera, that are going to come here to California in that legislation, which is really, really exciting. There's a lot of great stuff in that package, that over $1 billion package that we're really excited to see and worked really hard to ensure that there were good dollars in there for infrastructure projects, but also for public transit and public transit riders. Yeah, my organization is very excited about it as well. We were advocating it along the way too. I mean, this is hopefully going to be a game changer on a number of fronts, uh, you know, representing over 2,700 contractors and over 90,000 unionized employees, this means work. This means more jobs. This means more competitiveness on a global scale. Investing in infrastructure, is, it really is the underpinning of our economy regionally here. I want to just go back and ask one question about LA Metro before we move on. Has the pandemic and the resulting drop in ridership changed the way LA Metro thinks about building out its system. You know, we're concerned about, of course, always advocating to advance projects, to move projects forward, to get them done as quickly as feasible. And so I think our listeners would appreciate hearing how the drop in ridership, if at all, has affected the implementation of Measures R and M and getting that money out the door. Yeah, great question. On the one hand, there are some bright signs. So we saw with the purple line extension, uh, particularly through Beverly Hills, they were able to accelerate that project during the pandemic because initially they were putting in mitigation efforts so that it would not impact local businesses as they built out the station there. However, local businesses were closed for several months during the pandemic, as we all remember. And so they worked with the city of Beverly Hills to actually shut down Wilshire Boulevard and do some of the at-grade construction that they needed to do on an accelerated timeline, and that saved some money. We also saw that with some of the bus infrastructure as well. They were able to do some of the bus infrastructure projects quicker than it would have happened prior to the pandemic. That's the good news. The challenge, I think, is that you measure... M and R were built off the 40-year transportation plans. And those plans, while excellent, are set you know, decades in advance and costs change. And as we've seen over the last several years, many of the major projects, the big projects, and even some of the smaller projects, you know, we're working on a active transit corridor that could connect up in South LA through a pedestrian and bike infrastructure for major transit lines. 
Um, and that project almost doubled in the cost estimate because of a variety of factors. And so, and we've also seen this with other projects as well, the size of the project, the scope of the project, once they start to get into the planning process, starts to increase. And it doesn't have to do with the labor inputs. In fact, there's been some research that shows that you actually get a better product when you have skilled and trained workforce and credit to the great folks in the building trades and your partners. But it has to do with things like finding you know, a gas line or a water line or a water main that they didn't know was there and you know, getting permissions from different cities and different efforts that they have to take to, to cross different jurisdictions. And so we will continue to need federal and state dollars to ensure that the projects that we all have dreamed about and want to see built and should be built because they were in the plan and Measure R and they create significant amount of high quality jobs here in Southern California, we're going to have to continue to identify funding as well as identify strategies to streamline the process so that we can get these projects not only completed on time, but on budget and provide the jobs that were really promised uh, as part of Measure M and Measure R. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for that. We really focused this conversation on LA and our members, the organizations I support, our listeners are from across the region. So could you talk a bit more about our regional rail, Metrolink? What is the status of the operations there? I know that they've released a, a recent proposal to build out that system, make the service more robust. That proposal is called SCORE. Can you elaborate on where they're at and what your organization's thoughts and position is on Metrolink's SCORE proposal? Absolutely. And I know Denny's going to dig in a little bit more into the housing conversation, but we've always been an organization about high quality transit and good affordable housing. And one of the challenges, the way that California or Southern California has been built, right? We are, we have freeways all over Southern California and people in Southern California have driven until they've been able to afford housing. And then they have to commute sometimes one, two, three, four hours into their workplace every single day. And not only is that a drain on the economy, it creates terrible traffic, but it's just a drain on our mental health and on our quality of life and family life. And so how do we address that? Well, you know, and Denny will go into planning for and, and building more affordable housing, particularly around jobs, high quality jobs. But one way that we can really change that in the short term is to give people a viable alternative. And we have that alternative. We have this incredible 400 plus mile regional rail system that goes all the way down to San Diego and out to Ventura County and up into the Antelope Valley and into the Inland Empire in Southern California. But the challenge with the system is it has unreliable or infrequent service. And so the Metrolink, which the agency that runs this service came up with a proposal a few years ago called SCORE. And they did an economic analysis. It's a $10 billion project. It would create 113,000 jobs before 2028 Olympics and 1.36 million jobs by 2050 for an average of 42,000 jobs annually, generate $683 billion in gross regional product. And it would also reduce a huge amount of vehicle miles traveled because every car that we get off the freeway that's traveling sometimes 30, 40 miles to get to their destination and get them into high quality transit eliminates 
these vehicle miles traveled in greenhouse gases. So they estimated that it would eliminate 3.4 billion vehicle miles traveled uh, from 2023 to 2078. A huge amount of change in terms of people's travel patterns. And, you know, the project would double and triple track service so that they could run 15 and 30 minute headways at peak hours, which means that people could rely on the service to get them to and from work and get them home every day, which they can't at the moment. So we think this is a really great idea and it just needs the funding to really move forward to create those jobs and to create that opportunity for those people who have invested heavily, you know, their their life savings and their community in a certain place and, and moving closer to the job just isn't an option. And so by providing an alternative to that where they don't have to drive is critical to not only achieving our climate goals, but achieving our uh, lifestyle goals and our jobs goals throughout the state. Eli, how does MetroLink propose that the funding be secured for this? Well, they've gotten a certain amount of state funding already for it, and they would and they're obviously looking at federal funding but we had at one point we're looking at a regional measure that would have similar to a measure m but for the south coast region that would help to fund this proposal and it would have been a you know a measure that we would have proposed and we'd still love to propose if there are partners out there to to fund something of this nature and of this size because we really do think it is probably one of the better returns on our investment in terms of reducing transportation emissions uh, when we talk about climate change, because every car that you get off that road has a significant decrease in vehicle miles traveled. And so we think it's a smart investment and we think you know others in Southern California and the state of California and the federal government should see it that way as well. You know, let me add a little bit to that. The project that Eli was describing was a discussion with the South Coast Air Quality Management District. They were seeking legislation to authorize, and people often don't know this, if you're a city or a county, you don't need the state government to authorize a ballot measure because you have a constitutional authority. But if you're a special agency like Metrolink or like the South Coast Air District, you can't go to the ballot without first getting authorization from Sacramento. And so they were in the legislature and there was resistance to that effort that came from other parts of the region's political economy. People who were concerned, for example, that the air district might use the money instead of pros program might use it for example, to enforce rules on refineries and the like. So there was resistance. We were not able to get the legislative authorization. If we had, and let's just assume we used the model for Measure R and Measure M, where we might have a quarter cent or a half cent sales tax, there would have been enough money generated in the four-county South Coast Air District, which is San Bernardino, Riverside, LA, and Orange Counties. And that's essentially what the South Coast Air District is. There would have been enough money generated to actually provide funding for incentives for clean trucks, and all kinds of other off-road technologies, zero emission technologies throughout the region, as well as build out the Metrolink system, the SCORE program, and to provide Metrolink with the ability to transform itself not only into a much more efficient regional system, but to transform itself into a high-velocity, zero emission system, probably operating on fuel cells. 
that would have been a tremendous advance. We look forward to, I think, going back to that effort because I think the constituencies that were resisting then are developing a different view about what their opportunities are. And so I think this is certainly possible for that idea to once again, you know, to marry the goal of fighting climate change, but also our goals for really advanced regional mobility. Okay, thank you. Denny, just keeping it with you, and Eli mentioned this a number of occasions here, let's talk housing. Oh, yes. And the connection between transportation and housing. Yes, you know, California has a lack of all types of housing. What's affordable housing is a struggle in the affordability crisis. It's driving uh, folks out of California, especially those who don't hold uh, higher education degrees, as we see the, the continuation of the inability for anyone to build any type of housing in California. And it's really a drain on our economy in a really inequitable system. And it's really a frustrating uh, part of living in California and as a, as a society that's trying to become more equitable, more uh, economically competitive. How do you see the complicated web of building affordable and all types of housing with the build out of regional transportation? Well, all right, I'd love to get into this, but spoiler alert, I might be controversial here. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, we have had an overgeneralized explanation for what the origins of our problem are. Uh, people some in some quarters like to say, well, we just haven't built enough housing. And so we need to build more, more, more because it's just a supply problem and the numbers are what matters. And I think that's a little overly simplistic. I mean, if we look back, for example, at our population growth since 2005, our population growth in the last 15 years has been the slowest it's been since 1900. We have not had a growing population. In fact, the last several years, we've had a negative growth in population. So what is it that's been creating this growing demand that would drive prices up for housing? Well, I think if you look closely at the demographics, what you'll see is that in Southern California, generally LA County in particular, um, you've had a very significant growth of higher income households, households over $100,000 per year. That cohort above that level has grown from about 600,000 households in 2005 to almost a million now. Oh, that's a dramatic increase. That's like a almost 70% increase in the higher income cohort in our region. We have had almost approximately the same loss of households in low income categories. Now, some people might say, well, the explanation for this is that all kinds of low-income people became high-income people. Unfortunately, I wish that were true, but I don't think it is. I think what happened is that we had a very significant influx of higher-income workforce, mostly to work in the tech world. We remember back in 2005, 2006, when Silicon Valley came to LA to marry Hollywood and create Silicon Beach. That industry brought with it a dramatic increase in higher paid workforce. And that could be really a good thing, except that having it happen in such a short period of time was like a spike in demand on the housing side. And that, I believe, is what has really driven our prices of housing up. The spike in demand, which kind of starts in the coastal areas and heads inland, if you will, as the population shuffle 
takes place following housing prices. So part of the goal then does need to be, because a lot of those higher income folks are driving up prices and pricing out lower income folks, um, that means that we've got a, a challenge at both ends. We need to provide some additional housing for this newer, higher income folks, but we also need to deal with the emergency at hand, which is the low income people who have been forced out of their homes. Now, many of that 200,000 left the region, went to different states. But, you know, there's a goodly number of them that are on our streets now as homeless people. They are economic refugees. We used to think of the homeless as people, you know, down in their luck. Maybe they were having an alcohol or a drug problem or a mental health problem. Increasingly, we're seeing that the homeless population in L.A. County is a, are really economic refugees, people who have been homeless for less than a year and who lost their home because of rent increases or eviction notices or the like. We need to have a strategy that not only builds more supply for that higher income uh, cohort, but we got to make it an emergency hell-bent for leather effort to do what we need at the lower end of the income stream. The problem, I think, politically that we have is that no one level of government wants to measure up to that problem. The scale of it is very significant. I think the state government is worried that if they really do a big job on this, that everybody will just leave it to them and the locals won't step up. Uh, locals, on the other hand, feel overwhelmed by the problem and don't quite uh, know whether they can manage the resources to deal with it. So we need a strategy that mobilizes resources from all levels of government, and that's what we're working on. One level of government, of course, has got to be city levels of government. So there is a coalition we have been putting together to sponsor a ballot measure for the city of LA in November 2022 that would raise about $800 million a year for affordable housing and for homelessness prevention. Those economic refugees I mentioned, you know, many of them, if we were to have the resources directed to helping them stay in the homes that they're in, many of them would have never become homeless. We could prevent a large share. For example, people who lost their jobs you know, during the last 15 years, those people, if there were interventions to help them get through, say, a six-month period while they find another job, that would be a way of preventing homelessness. Unemployment insurance is just simply not significant enough to do that. We need some more strategic interventions there to prevent people from becoming homeless. Uh, we need seniors and disabled folks who are on limited incomes, but whose rent is much greater than a half of their income. We need to have interventions then to make sure that seniors, elderly, el low-income elderly folks in our county should be able to age in peace. And so strategies that intervene there, otherwise many of them will become homeless. But we also clearly need to produce a significant number of new affordable housing units. And so this ballot measure that we're talking about uh, in the city of L.A. will be, I think, structured to do both. It would be, a, I think, a real breakthrough moment. Um, the polling is good on this. The voters like these ideas. So look forward to that coming. The other piece, though, in the legislature, um, we have a bill with Senator Allen, SB 563, that was set up to structure a partnership between cities and counties. There used to be redevelopment where the cities and counties or property tax increment would be used 
for economic development and for affordable housing. In those days, cities could do this without getting the permission of the county and capture the increment above a certain date, the growth in property taxes above a certain date, without the county approval. But now we need county approval. So that tax increment is still very valuable. We should have a partnership with the county and the, and the cities, whereby the cities bring in their share of the tax increment, some other local resources like the ballot measure of money I'm talking, I've talked to you about, and the county then matches it with tax increment. The tax increment doesn't require voter approval, and the county could get matched two to one uh, for affordable housing with such an arrangement. The state could then become a partner as well. We could structure this to have a three-way partnership, and that's what it's going to take. If we're going to you know, modernize our economy the way we have, with the level of, of influx of higher income households, we need to be prepared to deal with the implications for low income people. And it's going to take all levels of government to do it. But locals have to play, county has to play, and state has to play. All right, Denny, we appreciate that. You're really well thought out assessment and attempting at a plan towards the future. This is a complicated issue that we're going to be dealing with for for some time. So, gentlemen, we've talked about a lot of issues here. I really thank you um, for your time. I kind of want to wrap all of these up together and with an eye towards 2028 Summer Olympics. Eli or Denny, can you give us an assessment of what you're working on towards that, what you see uh, as those Olympics aren't too far beyond the horizon. So perhaps well, that's a good way to kind of bring all this back into a nutshell. I'll let Eli get into uh, a lot of the transit work because a lot of Measure R, Measure M projects that are now scheduled to be completed in time for the Olympics that should provide uh, a very significant enhancement in our mobility at that time. And I'll let Eli go through that in, in detail. On the housing side, if we're successful, if we're successful in 2022, and if we're successful in the legislature during the same time frame, then LA County in particular, but other counties possibly as well, could have a robust resource for addressing both homelessness and the need for affordable housing. If we were able to do both, that affordable housing program and that transit program, those, those kinds of systems are very, very interactive. Um, and we could see um, I think significant improvement in our air quality, dramatic reductions in climate emissions, and a significant improvement in the quality of life for everybody. So Eli, why don't you get into some of the, the things that are expected by 2028 before the Olympics? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Denny. And I think we have a real opportunity. The last Olympics that, was, that were here, we saw some real interesting changes that may maybe what we need to do again and 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 some of it included simply making certain streets uh streets specifically for bus transit uh, to get both participants in the olympics but spectators and all of the media uh to and from the different olympic venues and i think when we're talking about a temporary sporting event like that i think that some really you know, quick and smart changes are going to have a significant benefit. And I think we can start to look to creating those right now with some of these projects. Because to really kind of change the way that people think about transit, we need to provide right now more fast, more frequent, more reliable, more safe, more comfortable 
and more accessible and, and in some cases, much more affordable uh, public transportation so that we get more people into public transportation and they see it as a real opportunity, particularly for some big sporting events. And I think we have such great opportunities because we're building that infrastructure to these sporting events, right? Uh, we have the Expo line and the red and purple line to the downtown Staples Center. Uh, and we're now building the, and it should be open soon, the Crenshaw line that will go near SoFi Stadium. But there is a real opportunity there to connect that directly to SoFi Stadium. And I know Inglewood has a project that they uh, would like to build, a union-built project, a billion-dollar project that would connect the Crenshaw line, which was planned before SoFi Stadium was even a consideration. We have to remember that um, to connect it to that sporting venue, which is where the opening and the closing ceremonies are going to be for the Olympics. But I think some of the other projects that are in the pipeline or that are being built right now, as I mentioned, the regional connector and the airport um, connection station, the people mover, all of these are going to be critical pieces of infrastructure that are going to help people move around the area and really see a different vision for Los Angeles, right? We're known around the world for our car culture, but I think if we have all these people coming from around the world and seeing that we have are building and have built a high quality transportation system uh, and those created tens of thousands of jobs here in Southern California, I think it's gonna really start to change the way that people see Los Angeles, LA County and, and Southern California as a region. And that's very exciting and a real opportunity for us to get it right. So we still have a lot of work to do. We still have most of a decade to do it in, but we've got to accelerate that and get moving. And again, as I said before, state and federal funding for those projects so that we can get them done on time and, and on budget is going to be critical to do that. Yeah, as the old adage goes, it'll be here before we know it. So <laughs> right. thank you for that perspective. Appreciate your your vision. Thank you for being here uh, with us today. And, and thanks for your advocacy. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. That's it for us today, folks. Thank you.